Our second scripture lesson comes to us from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. Listen now for the word of God. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus asked, were not ten made clean? But the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Holy One, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are without a doubt our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Seems to be simply another story of divine, miraculous healing. Jesus and the disciples are on their way to Jerusalem, which means they're on their way to the cross. And the text tells us they were going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. But what's interesting about Luke's story here is that technically there is no region between Samaria and Galilee. They border one another, sure, but but Luke here is talking about an actual space. Often the Gospels take artistic liberties sometimes to make a point. And I think that's what Luke is doing here. He's clearly talking about a place, but it it doesn't have anything to do with geography. They're crossing borders that are more acts of the imagination, lines that people draw to mark differences, but real lines nonetheless. I think Luke is, is drawing for us a picture And maybe it looks like this. Before he gets to the cross, Jesus and the disciples have to pass through a border country, a region that marks the boundary between Galilee, where they were raised, and Samaria, where they were raised never to go. They have to pass through the borderlands that mark us and them. They wouldn't go there if they didn't have to get from point A to point B, 
But if you want to get to Jerusalem, if you're on your way to the cross, you have to go through the borderlands. I don't know how the people mixed in this borderland between Samaria and Galilee. I'm guessing, though, it was pretty complicated. In those days, Jews and Samaritans had a real us and them thing going on. They didn't mix well. They didn't socialize well. And there was mistrust on both sides. Perhaps they even expected the worst from each other. Sure, living among each other was inevitable in these borderlands, but there was absolutely no social intermingling between Jews and Samaritans. That kind of behavior would get you immediately shunned from your own community. Jesus was increasingly drawing the ire of those in power for precisely this sort of intermingling. And so we find him journeying in that space between these clearly marked boundaries. And it was there he encountered 10 lepers. It's not surprising that Jesus encountered these lepers out here on the borderlands, outside the village. That's where they were required by Levitical law to stay. And they actually, you know, they naturally ended up just banding together to beg and, and eke out a living in whatever they could manage. Because the community as a whole was pretty afraid of them. Lepers have symptoms that include granulomas of the nerves and the respiratory tract and the skin and eyes. And this may result in a lack of ability to feel pain. And because they can't feel pain, they are prone to lose parts of their extremities due to repeated injuries or infections because they don't even notice the wounds that they have. Weakness in their muscles and joints and poor eyesight, those are also symptoms. But the most enduring sign of a leper is that he or she is rendered by everyone else to be ugly, not worth looking at. And, and the ugliness is compounded by this myth that leprosy is highly contagious. It is not. But it was more than, than catching the disease that the people were worried about. It was their pain, their loneliness, their unspeakable fear that no one wanted to catch. And so they were kept at a distance, barred from the religious community, and declared unworthy of God. The book of Leviticus spends two whole chapters teaching priests how to diagnose diseases of the skin, how to pronounce lepers ritually unclean, how to perform rites of purification should they be healed, According to Levitical law, when, when such an ailment was discovered, 
you had to leave the community, go live outside your village alone or, or with others who were sick. You had to tear your clothes and keep your hair disheveled. And anytime someone passed, you had to cover your mouth with your hand and yell, unclean, unclean. This kind of social exclusion might sound cruel to us, but Levitical law was in place to protect the community. So, so they live over there and we live over here. God knows we feel sorry for them, but you've got to be sensible about these kind of things. These are, there's, there's rules, boundaries, even in the borderlands. Now, none of this was challenged by these lepers themselves. They couldn't work after all, and they depended upon the charity of the insiders for their livelihood. So they dressed as they were told, spoke as they were told, and did not cross over that line that had been drawn to separate them from those with unblemished skin. They were obedient. They followed the rules. And even when Jesus, the renowned healer, came to town, they did not break rank. They stood at the proper distance and said the proper things. Jesus, Master, they called out, have mercy on us. Jesus didn't challenge the rules either. He didn't touch them. There was no mud, no spit, no talk of faith, just an order. Go and show yourselves to the priests, he said. And they did it, leaving just as obediently as they came. None of them asked why. They knew the law. They knew the rules. There was only one reason to go see the priests, and that was to receive a diagnosis a verdict, clean or unclean, inside or out. They knew the rules, but as they went to do as they were told, they were cleansed. The scabs went away and color returned, and, and the feeling came back into limbs that had been numb for years. And notice the text says not only were they healed, they were made clean. And it's the priest who declares if one is clean, if they can be brought back into the fold. And so Jesus here, he, he isn't just curing their bodies, he's restoring their identity. He's enabling them to return back home to their family, their community. In, in healing their numbed limbs, he releases them to feel again, to embrace and be embraced, to worship in their communities, to reclaim all the social and spiritual ties that this disease stole from them. Jesus enters a no-man's land, 
a land of no belonging, and hands out ten unblemished passports. He invites ten exiles back home. At this point, the story ought to be complete. It should be over. We should be able to move on. Ten lepers cry out for mercy. Jesus acknowledges their problem. He fixes it quickly and sends them along to see the priest who will take care of ritually cleansing whatever residual impurities the lepers left behind. We should stop right there and go home. Jesus, the miracle maker, has done it again. Somebody say amen so we can get on with this worship and go home. I heard that. <laughs> no, we could go home with those ten lepers, but we got a problem. One of them is missing. One of them is messing up the script. One of them didn't do as he was told. One of them has stopped in mid-stride. He's turned around and he's heading back to find Jesus, making a spectacle of himself, praising God and giving thanks and lying in the dirt. And of the ten, he's the least one you'd suspect to say it. Because this leper here was a Samaritan. In other words, he was a double outsider, a leper who was also an ethnic and religious alien, a double other, lying at the feet of Jesus and thanking God as if God was somehow right there in his midst. Sure, he's expressing his gratitude, but it's something, it's an expression that's deeper and a truer sense of belonging. Because you see, if, even if he had presented himself to the priests as he was told, it would have done nothing for him. He still wouldn't be admitted back into the community. Because even though his leprosy had been healed, he was still a Samaritan. No, he had nowhere to go. No place to call home. He was the embodiment of a borderland. But perhaps, perhaps it's his otherness that enables him to see what the other nine could not. He sees that his identity, his truest place of belonging, lies at Jesus' feet. He sees that Jesus' arms are wide enough to embrace all of who he is, leper, foreigner, exile. It's hard to say what effect the ten lepers' response had on Jesus. Something happened because all of a sudden Jesus starts asking questions. Weren't there ten lepers here a minute ago? Where are the other nine? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God? except this foreigner? And then he turned to the tenth leper and he said, Rise and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. 
or straight from the Greek, your faith has saved you. It's really an odd story if you stop to think about it. Didn't Jesus tell all ten to go show themselves to the priests? And didn't nine of them do exactly what Jesus told him to do? Didn't this one, in fact, not do what Jesus said? And even flaunt his disobedience with this sloppy show of emotion? Then how come this one got the special treatment? Got told his faith had made him well. Weren't all ten made well? What's really going on here? Reverend Barbara Brown Taylor provides some insight. She says 10 were healed of their skin diseases, but only one was made whole. 10 were declared clean and restored to society, but only one was said to have faith. 10 set out for Jerusalem to claim their free gifts as they were told, but only one turned back and gave himself to the giver instead. Ten behaved like good lepers, good Jews, but only one, a double outsider, behaved like a man in love. Taylor tells this story about her church where they, they leave the sanctuary open five days a week from nine to five, like the banks and the businesses that surround them. We like to think of it as a peace offering to our corporate neighbors, she says. We keep it dim and cool inside, a kind of oasis in the middle of the city, where passers-by can stop and rest for a while. But as you also know, the city is full of all kinds of people, and not everyone comes in here with godly intentions. So we've installed a closed-circuit television camera to keep an eye on the place, to make sure that no one runs off with the candlesticks or does anything unseemly in the pews like drink or sleep or embrace. You've got to be sensible about those things. The monitor sits beside the receptionist's desk in the parish office where the, the volunteer at the desk can keep watch over the communion table and the furnishings. And one day last fall, the receptionist on duty became concerned. There's a man lying down on the chancel steps, she said. I, I wouldn't bother you, but he's been there for hours. Every now and then, he, he stands up and he raises his arms towards the cross, and then he lies back down again. Do you think he's all right? Four priests and several staff members conferred over the matter and elected the parish superintendent to go check on the man. And he did so, and she says, we were all huddled around the monitor to watch. Our envoy appeared on the screen and walked up to the man, exchanged a few words with him, and then returned back to the office. Says he's praying. Ah, they said, thanking him for this information. And this went on for days. 
Every morning around 11, the receptionist would look up from her desk, and there he'd be, prostrate before the table, his hair in knots, his worn clothes covered with dust balls from the floor. The sexton cleaned around him. The guild tried not to disturb him when they came in to polish the silver. The florist asked if she should leave the flowers somewhere else, but they said no. Just step over the man and put him on the table where they belong. She said, we discussed this problem at staff meeting. Should we do something? Someone asked. I don't know. Another person said, what do you think? I think I want to get on that guy's prayer list, another person said. And they all laughed. And finally, it was Sunday. And it was turn to celebrate communion at the early service. And sure enough, he was there when they arrived, blocking the path to the table. They didn't know what to do. Maybe he was drunk. Surely he was crazy. And what would happen if someone asked him to move? So Taylor approached him as if she were approaching a landmine, she says. Tapped him on the shoulder, and he was so skinny, so dirty. Excuse me, I said, but there's, there's going to be a service here in a few minutes, and I'm sorry, but you're going to have to move. He lifted his forehead from the floor and spoke with this heavy Haitian accent. That's okay, he said, dusting himself off in one dignified motion. And then he left, and he never came back. The eight o'clock service began on time. The faithful took their places, and I took mine, she says. We read our parts so well. We spoke when we were supposed to speak, and were silent when we were supposed to be silent. We offered up our symbolic gifts. We performed our bounden duty and service, and there was nothing wrong with that, nothing wrong at all. We were good servants, careful and contrite sinners who had come for our ritual cleansing. But one of us was missing. The foreigner was no longer among us. He had risen and gone on his way. But the place where he lay for hours, making a spectacle of himself, seemed all at once so full of heat and of light that Taylor said I had to step around it on my way out, chastened if only for that moment by the call to a love so excessive, so disturbing, so beyond the call to obedience that it made me want to leave all my good works behind. I know how to be obedient, Taylor says, but I don't know how to be in love. Doesn't seem to be an ability I can command, like reflective listening or, or public speaking. And so I do what I know how to do, and I do it as well as I know how. 
Perhaps you do too. I read my Bible, I say my prayers, I pay my pledge, and there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing at all. It's that kind of steady, law-abiding discipleship that has kept this great ship of the church afloat for thousands of years. I'm one of the nine, but it's the tenth leper that interests me. The outsider, the double other who captures my imagination. The one whose disease I fear, whose passion confounds me, whom I may not see at all because he does not need a priest to certify his cure. Where are the nine, Jesus asks, but I know where they are. Where's the tenth? That's what I want to know. Where's the one who followed his heart instead of his instructions? Who accepted his life as a gift and gave it back again? Where's the one whose thanksgiving rose up from somewhere so deep inside of him that it turned him around, changed his direction, led him to Jesus and made him well? Where are the nine? Where, where's the tenth? Where's this disorderly one who failed to go along with the crowd, who, the impulsive one who fell on his face in the dirt, the fanatical one who loved God so much that obedience was beside the point? Where did that one go? It's a strange little detail in the text that Jesus should call this one a foreigner when he himself is a guest traveling through borderlands, a region that's filled with foreigners. You know, this is the only time the phrase foreigner is used in the New Testament, but it's everywhere in the Hebrew Bible. Foreigners are always popping up in stories in key moments to challenge our thinking about the lines between us and them and where exactly we ought to draw those lines in our imagination or even on the ground. We just heard about Naaman the Syrian, but there's also Ruth the Moabite, Hagar and Jethro and Rahab and Cyrus. They're all the foreigner in these stories. And they explode our images of what real faith looks like and who gets included when we talk about the people of God. I wonder if Jesus is showing us here that the law, which was good and right and should, of course, be followed, was not in any way the same message that Jesus came to teach. What Jesus was doing was something different, something that invites the lepers and invites us into deep and meaningful engagement with him. One that's the difference between being healed and being made whole. So maybe Jesus is nudging us here with this 
sharp word foreigner, as if maybe he wants us to look at the words we use day after day, as if maybe he wants us to see that we too who are on our way to Jerusalem, we too who yearn to follow Jesus to the cross, we too could use a trip to the borderlands, the region between the place we were brought up and the place we were brought up never to go. The place between doing what you're supposed to do and responding with a fullness of heart that's all-consuming. It's safer here with the nine. We know the rules and who does what. But the missing one, the one who turned back, the one who drew close, clinging to Jesus for a better and more permanent citizenship. That's where we're called to be. So go on. Go on out to the borderlands. Find your way back to Jesus. Be leper number 10. They didn't give him a name. So you can insert yours. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.